You are freer than you think. It's like the ultimate form of freedom. You expound upon that freedom to develop on this planet. True freedom comes from within. It's the ability. Thinking to myself, I can help you or I can destroy you. Man is a two-time felon. I work really hard and I've been, a, I've been a life learner. When things are feeling tough, let yourself be surprised. The world favors risk-taking. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Freedom Pact. My guest on the podcast today is Dr. Karan Rajan. He is an NHS surgeon and a bit of a social media sensation these days. Dr. Karan, welcome to the Freedom Pact podcast. Thank you very much for having me, Lewis. So I wanted to start this podcast pretty much at the start of your professional journey. I saw you wrote a piece in your newsletter on this the other day, but I wanted to see if you could maybe speak on it for our audience because I thought it was a quite an important story. How would you reflect on your first ever surgery now? I believe in the uh, article you said you described yourself as an idiot looking back. Yeah. Um, so I've been doing this for a number of years now. And, you know, I think you hope in any facet of life that you accumulate enough experience points, you know, if it was a video game that you'd be much better off, you know, in the later stages than you were at the beginning. Now, there's always be exceptions for those kind of things, you know, but looking back at my progress, which has been amazing for me to look back and say, wow, I've come a long way because sometimes the surgeries I do, I sometimes do take a third person perspective and think I'm actually removing someone's colon here and it's got cancer. And when I first started this journey, you know, training in surgery, it was a completely different world to me. You know, right now everything's an autopilot, you know, and similar to how pilots would do checks and, you know, their sort of aviation protocols, surgeons have certain checks and they need to almost be on autopilot and certain things they do, knowing the anatomy, knowing the steps of the procedure. But when I first started, all of that was completely new to me. And I was new to just being a doctor full stop. So you've got the added stress of actually just getting grips to life, you know, doing lots of admin, things like that. And then surgery is like an extra thing you try to get some training on. So it's not dedicated surgery training. So when I got in the operating room, Obviously, you're completely baffled by the environment, you're baffled by the anatomy, you're intimidated by, you know, these nurses have been in the operating room for, you know, probably as long as you've been alive for. So, you know, it's a really, you know, cauldron-like environment. And actually, getting past that stage is first part of the battle. And then the second stage is actually when you're operating, when you've got a knife in your hand, and often, you know, for many people starting out surgery, or I hope it's the first time, it's the first time that someone should be cutting open a human being, uh, you know, and that is a very surreal feeling. And then doing it right is obviously an important task. And also, lastly, it's important to have a good trainer as well. You can't be a good surgeon without having good mentors along the way. And I think actually that's a lesson for life as well. You need good mentors throughout your life, whether you're in business you know, whether you're an artist, a musician, and particularly a surgeon, it is a field where you are an apprentice, and then you become a master of sorts, but then, you know, you're constantly learning throughout life. So it's important to have those people who can take you under their wing. And yeah, my first surgery, I, I was an idiot, because 
I didn't really know what to do. I didn't prep the night before as you should have as a good surgical trainee, but I had a good trainer who guided me through it and kind of covered the cracks, um, you know, that I demonstrated that day. Yeah, a few of the things I wanted to pick up on there that you just spoke about, um, a lot of people in their jobs um, deal with, you know, high pressure situations, even, you know, maybe if you're in the business world, but at the end of the day, if something goes wrong in those jobs, you lose your company money, you lose a sale, but it's very different circumstances in a job like yours. And only a very small percentage of the population would be able to answer this question. But what is it like to realize that you literally have somebody's life in your hands? Yeah, well, I will tell you, um, you never get fully desensitized to that notion that you have got a living person, a living human being in your hands who's asleep and has trusted you and has signed a legal contract, a consent form to say, have at it, do whatever you need to do to sort me out. Okay. And a lot of patients that I consent for emergency operations will just say, you know, jokingly, but you know, that's uh, obviously masking their true feelings. Oh, I guess you want me to sign my life away now. And often that is it. They are signing their life away to you for a brief period of time to trust that you will take care of them. And sometimes, you know, there's, there's this thing where, you know, there are psychopaths in society, right? And it's a generally understood in the field of psychology that many high pressure jobs. So if you're in the army, if you're a pilot, if you're a CEO of a big company, if you're a surgeon, those people in those high power positions may have many psychopathic traits now these psychopathic traits are not necessarily a bad thing because there are some desirable traits of being a psychopath without necessarily you being psychopathic for example keeping cool under pressure this is what high functioning individuals need to do a sportsman for example cristiano ronaldo he's you know one of has been one of the elite sportsmen of the last two decades uh, so keeping cool under pressure is a potentially desirable trait. Uh, if you've got someone's life in your hand and you're experiencing massive bleeding from, you know, a vessel, if you start panicking, that's not going to help you or the patient. You've got maybe, a, you know, 30 seconds to stop the bleeding before something catastrophic happens. So keeping calm under pressure and demonstrating that psychopathic trait is beneficial. Now, in society, there will be some people, some surgeons, some chefs, whatever, who are psychopaths and who function as surgeons, as chefs, as CEOs somehow, but then obviously there's a small percentage of people who demonstrate those psychopathic traits without going fully into that uh, diagnosis. And I think that is key. Having that awareness that you can, you know, practice and operate under pressure that's key. And that comes with experience. You know, for a long time, when you're doing major surgeries, you're not flying solo, you're with experienced surgeons, and then you progress to flying solo. And then the added burden of having someone else to train who's your junior, and a position where you've been years before. So that's the next challenge to train someone who is like you a few years ago. Um, and yeah, it, it's something you need, you need to take yourself away from the notion that you mentioned that I've literally got someone's hand in my life because that's a very visceral sensation. And if you dwell on it too long, that can play on your mind. You know, it's similar to why, you know, it's contraindicated or almost a conflict of interest 
should you ever have to operate on your friend or family member because then you won't be able to separate that feeling you will be like oh my god i've got my dad's life in my hands and that is not going to benefit anyone yeah it's there's probably very few people who can handle something with with that takes such concentration such precision i think you know many people probably struggle to, to thread a needle or you know even play the 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 child's game operation let alone actually do it um at high stakes what is it maybe is is there any sort of practice or any um things or rituals that you do when dealing with pressure in a sort of delicate or or pinpoint surgery that requires just perfect attention yeah there's a few good points there and i want to make sure i don't miss them so uh in terms of keeping those concentration skills and just hand-eye coordination and improving them so if you actually there have been multiple studies done looking at surgeons from yesteryear so i'm talking you know 20 years ago different generation surgeons in my generation and then you know the medical students who will be a cohort of which will be future surgeons and i've seen anecdotally myself training those future surgeons and also looking at these studies the advent of haptic training increased vr and ar simulation in surgery and just you know people are playing video games nowadays more so than they were 20 30 years ago those medical students and those current surgeons like myself who have played video games, it's been demonstrated in studies and I've seen it myself, have much improved hand-eye coordination and reflexes, especially nowadays as a lot of surgery and particularly the surgery I do is moving towards minimally invasive surgery, laparoscopic surgery and robotic surgery. Mm. The, essentially, when you're doing these kind of surgeries, the um, minute movements you make with your hand mimic the movements you'd make playing a first person shooter game or something like that. It's like a joystick almost when you're playing with a robotic, you know, surgical assistant. So you'll be much more intuitive to take that up and you'll be a better surgeon in terms of your tissue handling skills anyway. Mm. That's only one component of surgery. And so that's an interesting part. So if you are a budding surgeon now, that's something which I would suggest start playing video games because uh, it will definitely improve your surgical skills in the future. In terms of concentration, it's a very difficult thing to maintain concentration at a high level to make sure you don't make mistakes for six, seven hours. I mean, one of my longest surgeries I ever did was almost 15 hours. It was on my birthday several years ago, and I missed my birthday because I was scrubbed in for so long, and I had no idea it would take that long. Uh, there were no complications. It was just a very long surgery. And maintaining your concentration for that long without food, sometimes without water, without you know, breaks to, you know, relieve yourself is very difficult. And there are often lots of distractions on the outside as well. People talking in the operating room, things can go wrong. Your mind wonders if you're not paying attention to that. And actually that's again, something you develop with experience. And going back to that 15 hour surgery I was in, I was assisting. So when you're assisting, you're often holding retractors, you know, and it's very, very, hard just to stay focused when you're not doing the surgery and just providing assistance and that's when your mind can wonder you start flagging your mind drifts and then you completely lose interest and all this time you're standing as well it sometimes is literally back-breaking work because you're you know lifting things holding things pulling things back you're losing like your upper body muscles 
and you're straining. You know, imagine holding a dumbbell of five or six kilos just up in the air doing a lateral raise for like an hour. Mm. Uh, sometimes that's the kind of uh, thing you might have to do and you walk home with a frozen shoulder. Yeah. Uh, but again, something you develop over time, that experience and you know, most things with time, dedication, consistency, and showing up every day, you will become half decent. So your concentration will improve naturally just by showing up every day. You mentioned a uh, sort of mechanical assistant in, in, in some surgeries. And it's an interesting topic because obviously as science and progresses, you know, they're only going to become more useful, more capable. But is there ever a point where, you know, you would sort of worry about that because I think if you've got maybe a human, uh, uh, you know, doing work on you, you know that, yeah, even if they're tired, you know, they, they sent it, you know what I mean? Like they, they can make mistakes, sure, but at least they're going to be accountable for those mistakes and they're going to, but I think sometimes with machinery, it's, you know, it's, um, and technology is, it can be unpredictable. You know, you never, you can never be a hundred percent sure. I mean, I was in work the other day and an iPhone charger just exploded to bits right in front of my face. And the electrician said he had no way to, uh, he had no explanation for it. Um, I know that's an extreme example, but do, do you ever get nervous working with, with that type of assistant? Um, so I wouldn't get nervous about it at this stage, certainly. So in terms of our current practices in surgery all around the world, we have laparoscopic instruments where we put a camera inside into the abdomen and it gives us a 4K or HD view of what's going on in the abdomen and it gives us a stereoscopic view. Brilliant high quality to see what we can see much better than 50 years ago when laparoscopes were first invented. The next step after that is robotic surgery and actually, uh, weirdly enough, the most commonly used a robotic assistant in surgery is called the da Vinci system. I have no idea why. And maybe after the uh, Vitruvian man where he had multiple limbs, because you have multiple limbs when you're uh, using robotic surgery. Uh, and, you know, these, these uh, instruments used in the robot, you control it, but it can twist in 360. It can go through planes that a human wrist uh, can't go through, which we're bounded by our evolutionary structures of our bones. But, you know, these robots can do things that we can't physically yeah. uh, and it can give us views and access to positions we wouldn't be able to do, you know, in a million years. So that's amazing. But at the end of the day, the surgeon is always driving that robots. And, you know, in Israel and I think recently in Brazil and actually in, in the UK as well, for some neurosurgeries, they've used holographic images, VR and AR combined to simulate and practice on certain interesting neurosurgical techniques. There was a recent um, amazing kind of generational event where a surgeon in the UK, a pediatric neurosurgeon, was involved in a 27-hour surgery to separate the brains of conjoined twins and separate the bodies as well. And they did that with the help of VR technology, which is incredible. In the future, I suspect that more jobs will be automized and there'll be more autonomy in surgery. Like for example, right now, AI is being used uh, to help read x-rays, CT scans, and things like that. And actually, this is also quite interesting. There's a recent study published in The Lancet looking at the use of AI to read loads of MRIs, CT scans, and x-rays. And 
the authors of that study, they hid all the details apart from the x-ray images from the AI algorithm. And despite not having any details of a patient's name, background, ethnicity, anything, it was able to find the gender of a patient. And sorry, not the gender of the patient, the is able to find the ethnicity of a patient Mm. with a startling degree of accuracy, saying that this patient's white, Caucasian, this patient was black, this patient was Asian, just from analyzing the pixels on these images, which is a scary thought in a way, because, you know, AI right now, it's not sentient, so we can't call AI biased on its own. If any bias creeps into AI, that's of our own doing. Humans have our own biases and cognitive biases, and we feed that into these data models we feed AI and how we program AI. So our biases are fed into the machine. So that's why it's biased, for want of a better word. But in the future, if we ever are to truly reach a point where AI is functioning, the key thing to remember is that AI is not moral. It's not immoral. It's amoral. It doesn't have any ability to debate ethics like we do uh, and, you know, kind of have the nuance that we do. Um, So I think in the future, in my lifetime, certainly, there won't be any AI that's performing surgery on its own without a surgeon. And I think that's key. Like right now in radiology, they did some studies where a pigeon could read x-rays and pick up breast cancers on a mammogram better than radiologists. Now you might think, why can a pigeon who we think is a stupid bird, how can that pick up breast cancers at a better rate than a radiologist? Well, that's because of the vision of a pigeon. It's slightly different to a human. So it's more attuned to microscopic changes, like little tiny changes, like a tiny white fleck. It will be able to see that better than a human because it will you know, associate that with a seed or a, or a rice grain. So it will be able to hone in on that, which a human might miss. But I think in terms of AI and fully um, being autonomous in surgery, I don't think that will be done in my lifetime. I hope it never truly is for the reasons I've mentioned. There's something about gut instinct and human intuition that I don't think and I can't see it being replicated in a piece of software or hardware, certainly not now. And, you know, Elon Musk has Neuralink and all these amazing things which might blur the boundaries between man and machine. But if AI truly ever does become sentient, that will be an evolution from us rather than a de novo AI becoming human-like. We will become, you know, the sentient AI, as it were, like cyborg enhanced in a way. It's a really interesting topic, and it almost makes you wish you could live a couple of hundred years longer just to see where it goes. Yeah. Do we, uh, should we maybe employ some pigeons in the NHS? <laughs> I want to be very careful about what I say. Uh, I've, uh, I've, I've always tried to be very diplomatic uh, in social media about the NHS. It's a fantastic organization. And as with any huge, gigantic organization, I think it's in the top five mm. employers yeah. in the world in terms of mass number alongside Walmarts and McDonald's yeah. and the Indian Army and all sorts. So, you know, it's a huge beast uh, of an organization. And with such huge organizations, there will be inherent flaws in the system. Mm. And there are lots in the NHS. Don't get me wrong. I could talk a whole day about the flaws of the NHS. Um, and yeah, who knows? You know, I think uh, that's how revolutions happen by doing unconventional things. So, you know, we should maybe extrapolate that study. But 
you know, I think at the end of the day, uh, the NHS is growing faster than it can find its flaws. And um, it's still an institution and it's done some amazing things for my own family members, myself, people I know, and the people I treat every day there, you know, where, where, you know, there's not many places in the world. I think we've got this certain degree of privilege where, you know, we've got some, we've got, I don't know, a broken bone. We can walk into A&E. It's fixed usually within 24 hours. And then we go home, we get amazing aftercare. And, you know, we can pick flaws around the system, but actually just for an emergency, if you've got an emergency or your family's got an emergency, like a bowel cancer, broken hip or anything like that, the care is so good and i've seen that and for all its flaws it's magical oh absolutely and while we're on that topic i wanted to maybe um sort of address some myths around uh doctors now whenever i've heard about people saying you know why should i you know why should doctors get paid more they already make so much money i've never <laughs> seen a poor doctor or you know or or yeah, they work long hours, but you know, they 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 signed. They knew what they were signing up for. They could have easily, you know, got a nine to five in the office. Let's start with the first one. Where do you, what would you say to someone who believes that all doctors are very very rich? Yeah, it's an interesting one, and I think you know the key thing about this myth. I think it's born from Hollywood and TV shows. And most of the TV shows that are well-known and popularized, you know, um, Grey's Anatomy, for example, Chicago Med, all of these things, they portray these really fancy hospitals, sexy doctors, driving sexy cars, you know, doing sexy things. And they're all US-based. And I know lots of friends who work as surgeons, doctors, and healthcare professionals in the USA. And it's a totally different system culturally and financially. You know, it's a financially motivated system for the most part. And you can, don't get me wrong, anywhere in the world, if you are a doctor, there is potential for you to make good money. That is goes without saying. If you're towards the end of the game, you're not training anymore, you know, you're a fully fledged surgeon, a plastic surgeon, whatever, even in the UK, anywhere you can make, there is potential for you to make good money and have a good living. Are you going to be ultra rich? Um, and, you know, be a billionaire or multimillionaire, less likely, but not impossible. And you'd probably have to be doing something outside of medicine to reach that caliber of which, you know, you might be dreaming of. But it's this myth of, you know, financial freedom and excess is born out of what we see in the Hollywood arena. And in the U.S., there is potential for you to earn a lot of money, even in the early stages of being a doctor. But before you get to that stage, you need to work very hard in the US, much harder than you would be working as a trainee in the UK. We're talking 80, 90, 100 hour weeks in the US, where it's really challenging, you're on very little sleep, and you're often treated like a dog. In the UK, you might not be doing those 100 hour week shifts on a regular basis. I've done them before, but they are an anomaly. My you know, average or, or a bad week for me would be where I work maybe 60 hours or 70 hours in a week, but that doesn't happen on a regular basis. And hopefully I'll be reimbursed with some extra time off. But again, to equivalent to that, your salary is not significant at all. Uh, someone I was reading on Twitter, there's a recent storm going on about doctor's pay or doctor's pay restoration because, you know, inflation has gone up in the UK by around 11%. And doctors' salaries, they've agreed, the government have agreed a 2% wage rise. 
but that's not in keeping with inflation. So 11 minus two equals a 9% cut in real terms. So on the surface, they're saying 2% pay rise, but it's not matching inflation. So, you know, doctors are balloting whether to do industrial action and take strikes so we can, you know, get that 9% restoration. So it would be in line with uh, inflation. So someone on Twitter to that effect calculated what he earns per hour based on the excess hours he works every week. He's a first year doctor mm. and it equivalates something to around, I think, uh, 13 to 15 pounds an hour, which is above minimum wage, but it's equivalent to maybe, um, you know, a sort of middle level manager in McDonald's or something like that. No offense to anyone working in the catering industry, but, you know, if a doctor has gone through five, six years of medical school, has a mortgage, has kids maybe, and is working 70 hours a week, saving people's lives, I suspect that might be slightly undervalued. Um, and I think that's the myth right there. Doctors can earn a lot, but in the UK, they are, my personal opinion is they don't earn their true potential. Another um, thing I, I'd like to explore um, on, on this train of thought is I heard you talk about the lost hours of working. And so for me, I've worked in gyms all my adult life. I've been a you know, personal trainer, gym instructor. And if my shift in the gym is 10 to 8, barring a extreme medical emergency where I have to wait for an ambulance to turn up right at the end of my shift, if it gets to 8 o'clock and, you know, my manager wants me to stay, I don't have to. I can say, nope, I was wrote at 12 <laughs> to 8, see you tomorrow. But for a doctor, if you're about to, you know, you think you're going to finish at eight, but something comes up and you're dragged into a, a situation, or, you know, a surgery or, or, or anything that takes, you know, ends up taking multiple hours where you can't predict the end. You almost can't plan anything, I'd imagine, in, in your normal life for maybe three to four to five hours after your shift ends and 100% know you can follow through on those plans. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I think that is the, one of the key differences, and it's important to bear in mind uh, when you're being a healthcare professional, not just a doctor, but you know, I've just been actually working shifts for the last uh, nine days in a row, and that's of my own doing. I uh, made, made multiple swaps. But over the last nine days, you know, there have been instances, even uh, last night, for example, my shift was due to finish at 11 p.m., at 10.45, just when I was wrapping things up and getting ready to leave, there's a patient who is incredibly unwell that I need to deal with. Uh, you know, they've got sepsis, a bloodstream infection, and it turns out they probably have a ruptured appendix. And this can't wait until the next morning. So the, the morning doctors will be in at 8 a.m. It can't wait until the next morning. I'm about to leave in 15 minutes, but realistically, you know, if I'm truly being professional and holding up to the values of what it means to be a doctor and surgeon, I need to sort this patient out and take their appendix out tonight. Uh, so I you know that's a common occurrence. Uh, I'll do that. I finished at 2 a.m., got home at 3 a.m. Um, so that, that is the thing. You can't just literally say it's 5 p.m., see you later, hand over to the night team, and I'll be gone. Um, because often there will be patients who you can't predict when patients become unwell. They don't stop being unwell as you finish a job. There is no timing. Uh, it's all just manic all the time. And you just hope that towards the end of your shift, it calms down. And absolutely, you never say the Q word.
you know, quiet because sod's law is it becomes hectic just when you say it. I don't know why there's some supernatural uh, presence or entity which times you saying that word and it all, you know, hell breaking loose. But yeah, as you said, there are no fixed hours. It's very difficult to plan things as a doctor, uh, you know, which is why it's very difficult to date another doctor yeah. um, or actually maintain a relationship often meeting up with friends who are non-doctors meeting up with friends who are doctors is even more challenging there's multiple crossover variations of their timing and your timing to work out uh, so it can be pretty hectic and, over, and to that effect as well over the last three years I've probably missed three or four friends weddings just because I couldn't get days off uh, because I'm on call yeah um and that makes me think and obviously there's a limited amount you can say on this topic but i imagine that if you're a doctor and you know during um the pandemic and everyone was was clapping for the nhs that's really good to see you probably think well thank you for that but also at the same time maybe i'd rather just not have to pay for my parking that that is literally it you know um the clapping i know there's a lot of people who felt uh, very strongly about it one way or the other yeah. you know it was very polarizing thing that whole clapping thing and I think probably a bigger deal was made about it than it truly should have been people were just clapping showing appreciation and I don't expect anything more than that from a person you know a simple human gesture saying thank you saying please saying you're welcome clapping fine I'm happy with that I'm not in it for you know the kudos from other people I just generally enjoy operating and improving myself and taking care of people but yes that things like that parking i don't want to have to pay to park at work and often very very bad parking environments i've had my car dinged up several times in a very cramped parking spot i've been late for clinics because i couldn't find parking and actually this was one thing that's really pissed me off uh, a few years ago uh, i won't name the hospital i worked in but uh, it's a hospital in an island just off the uk and i was running slightly late for a clinic and I went to my usual parking spots and I've obviously paid 30 pounds a month for parking there and there was no parking. So I thought, you know what? I don't want to miss the clinic and don't want to be late for clinic and delay the patients. Let me park outside the front of uh, the hospital and I'll leave a note on my uh, windshield to say, uh, I'm one of the doctors in the hospital. I'm in this clinic. This is my mobile number. I'm in the clinic. You can literally come and find me and ask me to move my car or call me. And I made it very obvious there. And I told the reception staff in the clinic and all the nurses there just to keep an eye on everything. Uh, I finished my clinic and I get a big penalty sticker saying you need to pay 120 pounds. It will be reduced to 70 pounds if you pay it within 10 days. So I thought, you know what? I am actually going to just stand up for myself. I'm literally parked there instead of delaying and trying to find an actual parking spot to avoid being late. I parked there. I contested it. Uh, and uh, they eventually escalated the fee to around 500 pounds and asked me to pay the 500 pounds. If I didn't pay 500 pounds, they would take me to county court. And, you know, that scared me because I don't want to go to court and I just don't have the time to be dealing with that. And eventually they said, oh, fine, pay your 120 and we'll let it go. But just, I was almost, you know, it was like these parking uh, companies are externally hired by the NHS. They're like gangsters, right? They will muscle you into just doing something and levy you and threaten you into do something and strong arm you. And that's what I felt. And I'm like, wow. I am a on the verge of burnout doing all these things. And the last thing I do need to do is pay 120 pounds 
for trying to do the right thing. So, you know, I've had a very mixed relationship with the NHS over the years. Um, and, you know, one of the that instance I just recounted to you was one of the low uh, points of uh, my time in the NHS. Mm. So obviously in, in your day-to-day job, you must, you know, you, you'll see so many um, sad things, so many negative things that affect you emotionally. I just wondered, how do you manage to sort of disconnect from the sadness and negativity that you'd experience in, you know, on your shift when you get home from work? How do you disconnect from maybe, I don't know, seeing someone pass away or see someone go through extreme pain and then come home? I can't imagine it's easy to just switch on Game of Thrones. Yeah. You know what? Um, it's, it's a good point because there's so many things which can go wrong and it's not just one bad thing. Like, you know, you're not working as a stock trader and stocks go down or you lose some money. You thought I've lost some money. You come home. It's multiple things can go wrong to yourself. You can have a, as a surgeon, you can have a complication where a surgery doesn't go as planned. So that is a burden that you have on yourself. And obviously the patient is suffering as well. So that's one aspect patient can die. I think it's very important not to understate the impact that can have emotionally, mentally, and physically on a person when you're doing CPR on a person and jumping on their chest and often doing CPR involves breaking ribs and you actually feel the ribs crack underneath your hands. You're sweating. It's an urgent scenario. You've got family members who are wailing probably outside. Uh, You've got the staff doing all sorts of things and it's a hectic environment. And if the patient doesn't make it and often they don't, you know, I think, again, Hollywood sells us this tale of, um, you know, CPR and adrenaline being very successful. It's not. The success rates of CPR are in single digit percent. Right. And that is for patients who are well, not very unwell patients who are old and have multiple medical conditions. So seeing someone die in front of your eyes, especially as a very early years junior doctor can be powerful to take that home with you. That burden home with you is significant. And But also just being told off or having you know, these little battles with your colleagues and other staff, you know, people will fight and you'll have disagreements. All of these things accumulate, these micro and macro stresses accumulate throughout the day and just admin tasks, like things are delayed, things doesn't happen, or you're waiting for something, it can't be done, parking, uh, you know, you miss lunch, all of these other micro stresses build up in addition to the bigger ones that, you know, death, being told off or having complication that all adds up and you go home and I struggled with this a lot in my first couple of years as a doctor because I didn't quite find you know a mentor for me just to guide me but the first time I experienced the death after having uh, done CPR unsuccessfully on a patient one of my um, seniors took me aside and just did a debrief with me went just said you know how do you feel and just took me through the whole process of not quite grieving because I had no personal connection to the patient apart from you know I'd looked after them for a long period of time so I'd gone close to them but you know debriefing in a way that just allowed me to unload and I did cry Uh, and you know I have no shame in saying that and I think it's good for you know doctors to not be desensitized to things you know at some point because that is the humanity right there not being desensitized and still feeling these emotions and you know still feeling deaths and complications to this day almost a decade into this job that's a sign that you've not been completely you know eroded by the stresses of the job uh, and by the nhs and it's debriefing with colleagues and you know you know i want to kind of 
say it's similar to grief in a way that you can't rush the process of grief or negative emotions. We have this myth in our society that we need to be happy all the time. You don't, you know, negativity and feeling upset and sad is part of the human emotional spectrum. And it's just a journey. You need to go through that negative emotions to come through the other side as well. So if you're experiencing something bad, speak to someone, always recommend that reaching out to people. We are social creatures. We love community. And you will go through that for a certain period of time, but it's just going through that, understanding it, talking it through. And that's what I did. And that's what I still do to this day with my parents, with other colleagues who have gone through similar things, my mentors, uh, just the other people who are involved in that event. You've got this kind of shared trauma almost of that singular event, which you can discuss. Um, So it's just actually talking to people and making those connections. But, you know, it's not easy to get through and you just need to, almost suffer for a brief period of time. And that actually makes you stronger for the next trauma that you will inevitably suffer. Well, we talked a lot about the, well, we talked about the negativity. And I think a lot of people um, think of hospitals as very negative environments that, you know, they want to spend as no time in or little time in as possible. It'd be horrible to work in, but I want to flip, flip the script here and ask you what lifts you up in work? What, you know, lights your soul up? What is it about your shift? What moments are there throughout the day that make you think, man, this was worth it? Yeah, there are plenty. Uh, I wouldn't be in this job if the positives didn't outweigh the negatives. That's Mm. pure and simple. It's an equation. Most things in life you do because you derive more pleasure uh, from that than pain, you know, going to the gym, etc. Moments in my day, if I look at my rotor and I see, hey, One of my best friends is on shift with me. Hell yeah, I'm going in. It's going to be good. And, you know, I'll be operating with him. We'll be doing things. We'll have, you know, uh, little, you know, tea breaks together. We'll just, you know, gossip or whatever, you know, we'll catch up. It'll be great. Or, you know, when I was younger, um, there would be this, um, you know, in the UK, the junior doctors are called F1s, foundation year doctors, first year doctors. I would look at the road and be like, you know what? Uh, I've got, I've got a crush on her and she's on all week. Amazing. You know? Uh, so, uh, I, I was single then I'm single now, but when I was then first year doctor, I was like, yeah, you know, I want to get into a relationship. And then I was like, yeah, I'll, I'm going to have a good week because she's around all week and she makes me smile. So, you know, it's that and just other little things. So in the canteen, oh, they're serving this food today. Amazing. Great. Just that brief moment when you get a morsel of food that you like, you know, it's how it's so powerful, how, you know, your taste buds can dictate your mood at that moment. You know, it's so amazing. Or just actually finishing something to completion by yourself. So, you know, something you were taught, something you were supervised on, and then now you're flying solo. So, you know, you do a difficult case all on your own. It it goes without any hiccups, the patient's well, just that overall completed loop is amazing. Or you have a good interaction with the patient. And, you know, I'm not asking for anything from patients. You know, often patients will, you know, enjoy their stay in hospital because they've been looked after well and on their discharge, a family member or the patient themselves will buy chocolates for the ward, for the nurses and everything. And that's great. And that's not even needed one bit. But often patients do that and that's amazing. But the thing I really love is just when a patient says, just thank you. You know, again, coming down to that basic human connection. I can't remember a whole bunch of times when, you know, obviously that happens, but when it does happen, 
it's incredible when just the simple words thank you like thank you so much for doing this for me uh it just lifts you up so much or just when you know a patient smiles or they crack a joke with you because they're well enough to do that when they come in they're incredibly unwell they're in pain they're vomiting their mood is in their boots you fix them you remove their bowel cancer or you remove uh, an inflamed appendix or you fix their hernia and their mood completely changes. You know, they've improved their quality of life and they're cracking jokes with you and they're actually being back to being a normal, functioning, happy human being with you. It's little things like that throughout the day that is just incredible. You know, just changes in perspective, food, uh, relationships with colleagues, all of that thing. And obviously finding a great parking spot helps as well. <laughs> well, we've talked uh, for 40 minutes on, you know, the, this amazing, powerful job. But as I mentioned at the top, there's a, a second side um, to the professional life of Dr. Karan Rajan, and that is social media. I mean, right now, I think, I think on TikTok alone, you've got about 5 million followers. Um, on Instagram, you, I think you're closing in on about half a million. You know, there's so you're reaching millions and millions of people. And even those who don't follow you, you know, you're reaching, you know, 10 times that in engagement. And so in terms of content creating, being a podcaster, I know the graph that that can be, you know, when I, when I put a podcast out and I think I have to, you know, I have to turn this into little TikToks, you know, it doesn't seem like a lot of work, but at, at times it, it is a lot of work and it can be very tedious work. Um, and I work a, a, a pretty low pressure job, I would say 37 hours a week. And even I struggle to find the time to make content. So I imagine for, for someone like you with a job like yours and the output you manage on social media, I mean, we're not talking a video here and there. Sometimes it's multiple videos a day. What is your sort of time management outlook? It, it seems it's quite impressive. Thank you. Um, I will say when I started this journey, I had no expectations that it would grow to this magnitude. It wasn't, you know, I never came in expecting I want to have, you know, this many million, this many hundreds of thousands or do all of this. It just happened organically. It was a pleasant surprise, obviously. And it's developed into this second career. I do say it's the career because for all the people who don't create content, uh, content creation, and for those full-time influencers, whether you're doing fitness influencing, podcasting, whatever, it's an incredibly rewarding but taxing job on you, uh, even if you're just doing content creation. And if you're doing another job, good luck to you. And in terms of time management, there's lots of transferable skills I've picked up as a surgeon in terms of timekeeping and being a doctor that I've thankfully managed to transition towards social media as well. And, you know, as you know, someone who's, you know, worked in the fitness industry yourself, you'll be able to appreciate meal prepping. And that's how I relate to meal prepping and making social media content. I can't make content every single day, purely because of the nature of my job, but I can meal prep or I can content prep and make a bunch of videos on a weekend when I'm completely off. You know, I've, I'm awake for, you know, I don't know, uh, 15 hours across two days in the weekend. Can I assign two hours across that weekend to make, you know, maybe three or four 40 second, 30 second videos? Yes, I can. And, you know, if you look at some of my content on TikTok, there is no high level editing. It's very amateur. It's me talking. It's providing my knowledge and experience. Um, but obviously I can repurpose some of that content to Instagram, to 
Twitter, to YouTube. Um, and also my aim is to make longer form content on YouTube, which is a bigger struggle because it requires more intensive resources in editing, filming, needs to be of a higher quality. And I plan um, someday, hopefully in the next few months, to launch a podcast as well because I enjoy chatting and having conversations with people. Uh, but it is very difficult. I'm not going to say here and just say, you know, it's easy. I could have been doing the same thing, but I could have, you know, 100 followers across all platforms. There's an element of luck timing um and just you know I, I, that's what i would say it is showing up every day as well similar to growing in any facet of life just like in surgery showing up every day timing luck and you know you'll be half decent at anything um you know if you're a youtuber and you're posting a video every week for five years i'm sure you'll get somewhere at the end of the five years even if you're not in the millions you'll get somewhere uh, and you make little tweaks along the way and that's what i've done in my journey and you know i just thank everyone who follows me for just engaging and enjoying it and hopefully they continue to because uh, you know i plan to invest more of my time and energy into this uh, you know, as time goes on but well, it's going to be really interesting to to watch as you take on those ventures um and it's and and, I, and i'm interested into into where the sort of life balance comes in because again from my perspective today um i woke up at 6 30 i was in the office by 7 30 i finished at three o'clock i drove home i came here i set up this podcast and only then now after this can i start i can go to the gym i go to tesco to do my food shop yeah i haven't eaten yet i'll, I'll eat and I find it hard to get that work-life balance. And with the hours you work and, and the effort, you know, you can balance both jobs. But there's going to come, a, obviously, a time in the day where you need to maybe do some self-care. Maybe you need to put a, a, a you know, a, a load of washing on. Or, you know, how do you strike that work-life balance? And especially when you look to the future and you think maybe of starting a family, because that's a whole other beast. Oh, yeah. Uh, all of those things have definitely been on my mind. A family, you know, I'm 32 now um, and uh, I would like to start a family. And I think it all starts by having a girlfriend in the first place to do all of that. Um, so, you know, as another thing, relationships as well, dating, very difficult to coordinate dates and actually start doing that. And I think any person who comes into my life needs to be cognizant of the fact that I am very stretched and I'm a very loving person. And I've, I would say I've got a lot of empathy, which is why I'm, I think I feel I'm in the right field. Uh, and I have a lot of time to give for someone in my life as I have in previous relationships. But I think, you know, some, they need to, anyone that does come into my life and, you know, my parents, friends, et cetera, anyone, I mean, um, are aware of my limitations on time for certain things and, um, you know, things like that. But I think my personal life at the moment, I found things to be quite flexible because of COVID. Last two years in the pandemic, you know, the world hasn't really opened up. You know, you, we've not been meeting our friends as regularly as we would over the last couple of years. We've not been traveling as regularly as we would over the last couple of years. We've not been going out as much for social gatherings. So all of these things have obviously closed off the world. But for, you know, on the flip side, if you think about it, it's given more time for people to introspect and be at home by themselves and do other things and cultivate other skins. You know, the amount of people who have taken up different hobbies over the pandemic, like cooking, reading books, gardening, it's gone through the roof. And, you know, I started this social media journey at the beginning or just before the pandemic. 
And it's given me more time being at home, not going out meeting friends to work on content and things like that. And now that the world has opened up a lot more than it has in 2020 and 2021, I'm continuing along that trend. And actually, I would say I've become slightly more introverted because of the pandemic. And I enjoy being an extrovert on social media, but introverted in real life to some degree and channeling my focus into this kind of social content because, you know, it's a parallel to my job. And I made this point um, to one of my friends recently in a surgical clinic. I might see 20 patients and that's a busy clinic where I'll see 20 patients in three hours, maybe. And in real life, if I make a, in, sorry, in social media, if I make a video uh, on hemorrhoids or breast cancer, and that reaches 3 million people, 3 million people view it, and the engagement of that video the footprint is 12 million, 12 million people versus 20 patients in a clinic. You know, and even if 0.1% of that 12 million people have some relevance to that video, that's still significantly more than the 20 people I see in the clinic. So that's why I do social media and I continue it. And I think at the end of the day to get more freedom for myself as I grow and, you know, the aim would be to make some sort of passive income from social media as well, without selling out obviously and doing all sorts of crazy hair-brained sponsored things, but getting some modicum of interest from there and using that money to delegate tasks to other people, maybe hiring an editor, maybe hiring uh, someone who can, you know, handle personal tasks, like a sort of a PA or a secretary or someone who can manage my emails. So little things like that, which can take away some of these more mundane tasks from me so I can have more freedom in my time. So I can dedicate to my own personal life and relationships and my dog and gym and things like that, but also so I can have more time to create good content. Right now, I am a one-man band, which is a huge stress for myself. Yeah, I love what you were saying there about the reach and that, you know, um, you probably, well, you definitely do derive a lot of, of meaning and purpose from these TikToks. People might look at it on a surface level um, view and think, wow, look, you know, look at all these likes he's getting, look at all these views he's getting. But when you really think about it, say you make a video that, I don't know, is on about how, you know, how a man would, you know, self-assess themselves for testicular, you know, cancer symptoms and 12 million people see that, you know, and it's, you know, it's educated a mass, is mass amount of people. And maybe 1% of those people have, you know, maybe it's only 1% of those people had never really known how to do that before. That's still a large chunk of people who now yeah. are aware of such an important thing. So there's so much meaning you can derive from what you do. And you, when you talk about monetization, and I've experienced this, but I imagine you experience it far, far greater. There are so many companies out there who would pay stupid money for you to post about their testosterone booster or their fat burner. And I'm talking serious money. And you could easily do that and you could make a, you know, a load of money. I've never seen you do that. In fact, I heard you talk about you turning down something stupid like you know a hundred thousand pound on some post just because you didn't believe in the campaign or the product and so there's a lot of responsibility that comes with what you do and i sort of i i really recognize and appreciate the sort of integrity that you move with because i know what opportunities are out there 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, so yeah, it wasn't a hundred thousand, but um, it was significantly beyond my monthly NHS salary. Mm-hmm. And uh, without naming the names, the two huge probiotic companies approached me and said, "Hey, we love your staff. We want you to uh, promote this probiotic and make some TikToks and make some Instagram reels and." be our ambassador basically so you know you'd be in this retainership you'd get a monthly fee being an ambassador and on, on top of that some extra money for posting uh you know these videos as well and you know on the surface level great a doctor promoting probiotics fantastic easy money but actually you know i've persistently made videos saying that probiotics are a huge hyped up thing you know it's essentially modern day snake oil to some degree because the microbiome is not fully understood to the degree that we can prescribe probiotics to someone and say that would definitely help you. Only a very small percentage of people who suffer from colitis, inflammatory bowel diseases, or antibiotic associated diarrhea will benefit to some degree from probiotics. Not everyone. You and I, if we take probiotics, will it work? Who knows? It's like pissing in the wind. We've got millions and thousands and tens of thousands of different strains of bacteria in our bodies. If we take these random three strains of bacteria in a probiotic, a one size fits all for everyone and pop a pill, is that gonna work for Lewis? Is that gonna work for Karen? Who knows? It's so unregulated and it's a bit of a scam right now. So that's why I've made videos to this point saying, you don't need probiotics. You just need to eat more fiber, maybe eat some fermented food, some Greek yogurt and some kimchi or whatever, mushrooms, whatever you want, but you don't need probiotics. You know, Use that money to go to the gym, use that money to buy a gym membership or you know, put it towards more fruit and veg, things like that, and you don't need it. And that's why I said, no, I could have easily made some you know, quick cash on hand, done this, no one would have blinked an eyelid except myself because I have made videos against probiotics and the principle of buying probiotic supplements for healthy people. So it would have been ridiculous of me to do that. And that's just one incident. I've had, you know, people approach me to promote testosterone boosters or penis extenders, vitamin C gummies, all sorts of random things. And, you know, if anyone ever watches any of my videos, they know that's exactly the kind of thing I debunk, stand against and make a mockery of. Uh, so to me, doing that would have just lost all credibility, all value and all integrity, which really is the pillar which you stand on to then hopefully, you know, get your audience and make money. And there's other ways to make money. You know, as I said, I'm trying to make more long form YouTube content and you can make money from views. You're not getting money from your audience. You're not asking them to pay you. You're asking just to, you know, pay you with time and to watch a three, four, five minute video and you'll get some ad revenue from YouTube. Or, you know, you can write a book and then, you know, there's no problem. I would have no problem, you know, asking people to, buy my book if if I felt it was valued and I would spend a lot of time if I ever wrote a book I would say I'm really proud of this product here you go um or you know I've made a podcast and again from you know the streaming money or again putting it on YouTube whatever it was so there's other ways to make money from your audience which is authentic and not selling out and those are the ones I'd like to explore even though if they take a bit longer that's fine yeah I mean I think a a really good example of, of what you just said there is um a buddy of yours and a former guest of mine, James Smith. Mm-hmm. He has, you know, uh, he could make revenue through TikTok, YouTube, Instagram, crazy money. But he's he said he's never taken a paid post. But 
you know you'll write a book and you know get the money that way or go on a tour as long as you're providing value um you know you you yeah. can do it with integrity and uh i think it's quite easy for people to spot who's you know genuine who's got that integrity i think i used to listen to this really really popular personal development podcast um i won't say what it is but i remember listening to an episode one day and the host was talking about how he strongly believes in um, a plant-based diet um, and he was you know selling you on um, you know plant-based and anti-carnivore and I don't mm. think that his adverts are editing in I think it's like an automated feature where they plugged in and then halfway through the episode it cuts to him reading out an advert for butcher box the meat company <laughs> and I remember just turning the podcast off and I thought I'm done with this man. But yeah, I think is there's quite a lot of people out there who maybe, you know, there's a there's a mass amount of information in the world. It's hard to navigate what is real and who's genuine, but there is definitely a lot of snake oil. There's so much snake oil out there and there are so many fake gurus out there these days uh, who proclaim to be something they're definitely not. And if you just took a, take a look at the explore page on Instagram, you know, I, I follow and watch more podcasts nowadays than I did maybe a year or two ago yeah. uh, because I'm interested in it and also for inspiration for, you know, any future podcast I launch. And I see a lot of these uh, podcasters and you see a lot of the same guests on all the same podcasts the kind of big level names and it's almost like a little casting call of the same guys and the same talking heads on every podcast and I can't find I can't imagine anything more boring than the same people recycling the same stuff on all these big podcasts and you know like I'm all for deep meaningful conversations and getting into the nitty-gritty and you know being quite intense and I love getting deep with someone but some of these podcasts, you almost feel like they're getting deep into some nonsensical point just for the for a soundbite so they can put it on social media and, you know, put some emotional music on the background. And I'm just like, I, I can see through it because it's just, you know, just ridiculous. And they I think there's this thing on, um, you know, you can see on social media. It's not quite a Dunning-Kruger effect where, you know, stupid people think they know more than they do but it's kind of this it's almost the opposite of imposter syndrome you know in imposter syndrome the bigger you get in some senses or the higher you get in life you almost have this uh, existential crisis where you're like whoa i don't belong here or you know and, and i've had that in surgery and in social media as well to some degree but the opposite of imposter syndrome i don't know if it has a name for it but um or maybe we should call it like, you know, the, the Dr. Ross effect or the Dr. Phil effect, because they're, they are proponents of this. The bigger someone becomes, they become so inflated in their ego that they start promoting more and more misinformation because they feel they can get away with it because now they've got the credibility of a big platform and they start going more clickbait, more misinformation, more pseudoscience. And I see that so much in health science podcasters and kind of para health podcasters and who talk about philosophy, life and self-improvement, these kind of wellness bros. Uh, and, you know, they always so much chat about, you know, uh, the benefits of intermittent fasting or, you know, this certain type of movement or this certain type of diet or, you know, measuring your capillary glucose and all of these kind of things. And I'm just thinking, shut up. Just shut up. I mean, the, the, the layman watching this 
will listen to you because you're throwing in misinformation, pseudoscience based on um, a rat study and real medical knowledge. So you blend in real medical knowledge with crap, you get crappy medical knowledge uh, and people will buy that. That's the problem with uh, people who become inflated with rising social media statuses. Oh, absolutely. And it, and it, and it, and it definitely, it definitely sells. That's the sad thing. Like there's so many um, sort of health books these days just become massively popular um, because they almost do a, a good job of convincing you that, you know, you definitely have a problem and they've, they're the ones with the solution to it. Um, and it, it, yeah, you are right. It's sad to see. And, you know, this was more so when I started out, you know, I, I was maybe a bit blind to this and I would speak to maybe, you know, a, a doctor um, and they'd be telling me these things and I was getting my mind blown. But then when I really sat down and thought about it, I'd have to not release the episode because I thought, okay, I'm definitely not a doctor, but even I know that that's nonsense. And I, you know, you have a certain responsibility to your audience and these fake gurus you talk about, I think people have to be, you know, really vigilant of these people because I've loved the personal development space since I was 15 years old when I first saw my motivational video and I was getting into all these business gurus and life coaches. And I, I remember I read this book by this, um, I guess you would, I don't know how to describe him He's a big personal development guy and everyone listening to this podcast has probably heard of him. I won't name him. Um, and I read his book and I remember thinking, wow, this is, you know, this is so good. And then I got to the end of the book and there was this chapter and it was like next steps. And it said, great job. You, you know, you've read the book. Now you can go away and try and make these tactics work for you and spend 30 years trying to master them. But you're only truly going to master them if you sign up to my online course, you know, and you go and lock in the online course is another $500 and you think, okay, I spent 20, 20 pound on a book that was essentially a click funnel to another product or, you know, I, I, there was the same guru. I was just interested. I was on Instagram and they do this thing, DM me the word, blah, blah, blah. And you know, I'll, I'll respond and it's like an automated thing or they have an assistant and they try and sell you this crazy course. And one day I just, you know, thought I'll say, I replied and I said, well, I don't have much money left to my name. And, you know, I, I, you know, I really want to make my dream work, but I don't have a lot of money. This is really my last shot. Do you really think it's worth me putting this money in? And they replied and I was blown away. They said, Lewis, I think that'd be a great idea. And I thought, wow, you know, you're telling someone who's, who's told you they don't have a lot that you have the answer to all their problems. It is, a, I think the personal development world is becoming a bit of a sad place. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a huge scam. And, uh, you know, I'm sure there is some benefit that someone can derive, but I don't think it's worth several hundreds or even several thousands of dollars or pounds or whatever it is you're spending. Personal develop comes from just doing something yourself and developing, making errors. You know, you will fail. But actually, I used to think when I was younger that success and failure were opposite ends of the spectrum. But actually, your successes are building blocks from several layers of failures. And I've done that throughout my career. In social media, you fail, you try something else, it's slightly better, but it still fails. You try something else, it's even better. And you build on the, you build your success on failures. And actually, it's a spectrum rather than, you know, a total opposite. 
And that's how you develop, whether you're picking up photography or social media or singing, you just keep doing it until you better yourself. And it might be a long process, it might be a short process, but I think that's the really the only way of uh, doing it and knowing for yourself rather than taking someone else's advice, because we're all individuals. You know, what works for someone may not and often will not work for someone else. So why listen to a self-help guru when you are your own self-help guru, you know? I love it. I love it. Well, as we start to wind down, I have one final question that we ask every guest that comes on the show. Doesn't matter what the topic or information is. Um, and this could be anything. And I, I'm pretty interested in your, your, your answer. But right now for Dr. Karan Rajan, what makes a life worth living? It's a good question. And I've debated this a lot. And I look towards the people of Okinawa and they have this thing called Ikigai, which is their purpose in life, the reason they wake up in the morning. And I didn't have that for a long period of time. And I think to some degree, social media has given me that, uh, educating people. And I realized that I love educating people, empowering people and providing knowledge. And when I provide knowledge, I provide myself knowledge. And for me, that is life. Just the constant, what is the meaning of life for me? And what is the purpose of life for me? constantly seeking knowledge and nothing makes me happier than reading a book and learning something I've never known before or watching a documentary and getting my mind blown by something I had never even thought about before having my perspective change so acquiring knowledge is my purpose in life and is what gives my life meaning that's a beautiful answer man and this conversation is gone down many different paths but I, I i really thoroughly enjoyed it it's one of my favorite episodes i've i've done this year by far um and i thank you so much for bringing bringing the value and the and the true honesty to the episode i really appreciate it thank you so much man it was really yeah it was good to go into this uh, i really enjoyed it as well well before i let you go um maybe i'm not sure i'm not sure you necessarily need the traffic at the moment but if there's anyone listening right now who doesn't follow you on social media uh, please let these guys know where they can find you and connect. Yeah, I'm on TikTok. You'll see me as that guy who pops up in the corner of your screen, uh, Dr. Curran. But more importantly, make sure you come onto my YouTube so I don't have to sell probiotics to you. <laughs> Amazing. Well, I'll leave all that in the description below so people can go and visit. Uh, once again, thank you so much, man. It's been an absolute pleasure and I hope we get to do this again one day. Absolutely. Thanks, Lewis.